called and then hey there ladies and gentlemen it is your host of where's your head at uh, michael harding thank you for tuning in today um so in today's episode we have an incredible guest we're going to be talking about machine learning uh, a little bit about the headspace and where's your head at in regards to machine learning um, people's fears perspectives and understandings of the ai and machine learning world um but yeah let's kick off today's show uh first thing that i'm going to do like i always do every episode is i'm going to talk about a book so the book this week is a book called procrastination which is something that we all suffer with um so procrastination why you do it and what to do about it by Jane B. Berker, uh, PhD, and Lenora M. It's a great book. Um, now, the irony of this one is I actually procrastinated in getting around to actually reading this one. I finally got around to it, um, and I implemented a reward system uh, after 15-minute power sessions. So this is one of the first books that I read on my personal development journey, and I, I really, really, really struggled with it, hence getting it as the first book that I realized I, I needed to read. Uh, so I'm just going to summarize some of the, the key techniques that were listed uh, in this book. So number one was to identify a behavioral goal. Once you identify a behavioral goal, then that's when you can start making a change in what you see as your procrastination defect. Next was to, number two, was to set a realistic goal because obviously things are re- unrealistic it makes sense why your brain is trying to procrastinate and put things off number three break your goal down into small specific mini goals Uh, number four be realistic rather than wishful about time uh, in terms of the amount of time that you're going to spend on said given task number five probably the most important one just get started number six use and value power of the next 15 minutes just do something take action for just 15 minutes towards your goal you'll be surprised how much action you can actually get in 15 minutes whether it's you're procrastinating on doing some exercise procrastinating on reading a book procrastinating on starting a book procrastinating on tidying up your room whatever it is you'll be surprised how much you can actually do in 15 minutes and this is what really helped me was kind of using it like gamification or just having three songs that I knew only lasted 15 minutes as soon as those songs are up that's when my task is over Um, next one was uh, expect obstacles and setbacks so often when we've got tasks um, and challenges we kind of don't expect there to be obstacles and challenges and we think oh yeah things are gonna go perfectly smooth all the time but life is life and that isn't what quite happens um Next is when possible, delegate tasks. So again, another reason why we sometimes procrastinate is because the task is too big. If you can delegate um, some of the tasks, then that's great. And number nine, protect your time. So this is a very important one. So if you've got set tasks that you know you have to do, let people know that you're going to be unavailable from those time periods. Number 10, watch your excuses. I'm going to give my quote here as well, a quote for the day, which is excuses only satisfy the people that make them. That is one of my uh, friend's favorite, favorite, favorite quotes, um, that your excuses don't really reward other people. Or sometimes we we give excuses because it makes us feel better. But that's it. It's just making us feel better it doesn't necessarily make the people that you've potentially let down feel better Uh, number 11 reward your progress along the way focus on effort and not on outcome so in terms of compounding this is a subject that we're definitely going to cover in later episodes the the key the key to most success in life is actually progress and taking one step at a time and number 12 the final one use your procrastination as a signal to take action towards your goal the moment you feel and sense that you are procrastinating that is a sign for you to actually take some action and maybe use that oh figure out what your procrastination habit is and once you realize you're in that zone use that as a signifier to go okay i'm in my procrastination zone that means that i need to now get into my action zone whether it's 15 minutes whether it's 10 minutes get into that zone 
Okay, cool. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to the next section of the show. Um, and like I said, we are very, 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 very lucky today um, that we have a special guest with us. Um, no, none other than Dr. Anne Hasu. Uh, hopefully I've pronounced her name right. Um, Dr. Anne, are you there on the line? Hi, yes, I am. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. Oh, uh-oh. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, it just cut out for a sec. Oh, no worries, no worries. Okay, yeah. cool, perfect. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to let you introduce yourself and say a little bit about your background. Um, so I'm a lecturer at Queen Mary University of London and the computer science department. And my research combines machine learning and psychology. Um, I have background in neuroscience and cognitive science. And so basically all range of things that combine computing with psychology. Um, has been my research background. And I'm currently working on an artificial intelligence to help people have more productive conversations in difficult situations. Wow, wow. So that's uh, <laughs> quite an interesting transition. Tell us more about why neuroscience? Well, so uh, my PhD was in physics. And it was, uh, I was just searching for a topic. And so that's, that's how I just ended up in neuroscience back then. So that was like the first, um, my first research topic was in computational neuroscience. So it was building neural networks, understanding how they kind of learn and represent the world. And from there, I transitioned more toward cognitive psychology and using machine learning in other ways. Wow, wow, wow. So would you say that from your understanding that the the okay this is a bit of a a rogue sentence but would you say that the machine brain has similar similar characteristics as the human brain it's an excellent question so i think that there are inspirations that both fields have adopted from each other so for example um computational neuroscientists, you know, they use some elements of computing to try to understand the brain. And similarly, in machine learning, they have used some uh, ways of structures to, to help inspire models. However, that's where the similarity ends. You know, we know so little about how our brains actually work. You know, we have a billion neurons and however many more connections you can imagine. And it's so much of how we represent the world is not understood. Like we don't even understand you know, when you, you show a neuron like the same image or the same sound, it does different things every single time, even in the most con constrained laboratory conditions. People are still debating what, what is there. Is that a signal? Is that noise? What's going on? So there is a, there's metaphors and there's inspirations from the two fields, but largely they're very, very different things. Wow, very interesting, very interesting. So in, in regards to the... the how do I articulate this? Now, my neurons are, are not quite putting <laughs> things together. Um, how would I articulate this? In what sense would you say the... Yeah, w would you say that there's more of an understanding of AI than there is of the human brain? Yes, I would think so, actually. Definitely. So even though now with uh, the latest like deep learning models where people say, oh, the, the workings of the models are so mysterious, uh, I absolutely think that still our ability to probe these models and understand how they are doing their computations is way more accessible compared to the human brain. I mean, it is very hard to understand sometimes the intricacies of these models because they're very big and they have so millions of parameters and these things. So it is complicated. But not compared to our you know, human brain. Definitely. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's an intriguing thought because I think one of the, the biggest misunderstandings that I've seen when it comes to talking about machine learning and AI is that, oh, no, it's going to be like Terminator. It's going to be like The Matrix. It's going to take <laughs> over. It's it's smarter than us. It knows everything. Kind of This this is the kind of dialogue that we often hear and, and see. So just to, like you said, there's there's not much would you say machine learning is uh, quite new? It's in its infant stage. And if if so, what's the kind of background and history on AI and machine learning? When did it really start? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to reveal my lack of historical, uh, good historical accuracy. I mean, it started a long time ago. I think the first 
a perceptron, which is a neuron model, computational neuron model, was back in the 50s or 60s. There was like neural network uh, work in the 80s. It's, it basically really took off in the last you know, decade because of the amount of data we have and the amount of computing power and also some innovations in the, in the algorithmic space. But a huge thing is that we have so much more data and uh, computing resources to crunch that data. And the thing about machine learning is that it's it's data hungry. That's it's it's what that's why it's called machine learning. I mean, I think a lot of people think of machine learning as something that naturally evolves and learns like a human. Well, people do work on those types of models, but that's very kind of cutting edge new research. But most of the by far most of the machine learning that's used today is a model that has been pre-trained on data and you need just massive amounts of data to be able to make complex decisions or complex predictions about um, patterns and things like that okay so, so basically machine learning's kind of from from what i understand you're saying machine learning's limited by the computing power that we give to it yeah and, and even more it's, it's limited by the data that we give to it Okay, so in terms of data, the the information, so it's it's kind of like a, a hungry child, whereby the more experiences we give it, the more it can learn, and if we limit its experiences, then it can't really. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, that's an interesting way to 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 think about it. I think. I think yeah, so, the... so often, like companies will, you know, they'll say, "Oh, we want to predict this and that," and the the thing is, oftentimes their data won't necessarily have what they want to predict you know it might just be noisy it might just be uh, very uncertain what you know what they're hoping will come so if a machine cannot magically create structure when there is none right in the world i mean some things are just very hard to predict um yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Yeah. I think the 2020 has definitely shown that some things are hard <laughs> exactly, to predict. Exactly. <laughs> so things just have huge amounts of uncertainty and there's no way to you know, eliminate that from the world. Definitely, definitely. So in, in regards to the machine learning space, what's the, the, the kind of range that you're aware of in terms of what's the, the fields that machine learning is currently applicable in. Is it applicable in sports? Is it applicable in art? Is it applicable in I don't know, um, like like you said, it's it's applicable in the mental health space, which is something I didn't know until I started speaking to yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, so the answer is I think it's pretty much applicable in almost all spaces. Um, so you know, as you said, in sports, absolutely, people use machine learning models to predict who should go on what team, what players, are they worth how much they're worth? You know, betting is a huge part. Anything where you're trying to make models and make predictions, you can use machine learning models. It's just another type of predictive model. Um, and in art, there's so much about art generation. I mean, this is kind of the recent breakthroughs were in terms of generative models that create paintings or videos or sound and speech that uh, look like real paintings, either new ones or you know all the deep fake stuff where they you know, create very, very convincing copies of real life um, visuals and audios. Um, basically in any field really that there's data, there's patterns. Um, I mean, people tend to think of AI as like, oh, a being or something that talks to you, but really it's, it's just any um, model or system that's seeing patterns and making use of patterns to help you know, inform something, whether it's predicting what this patch of an image should look like, or whether it's predicting, um, you know, when the next thunderstorm is going to hit, right? So it's, it's all doing that kind of thing. Oh, interesting. So in regards to the, the positive perspective of, of machine learning and AI, what are a few positive applications that you've seen from your experience of machine learning and AI of how it's helped people or yeah how it's how it's helped well i think there have been so many positive uh applications i mean the the insights that we get from complicated data sets right even i don't know like health outcomes i imagine that's gonna i think that will be a really big positive right? especially when we get a better genomic data sets and you know 
gene sequencing is getting ever faster and medicine is so um, individual, right? You always have that thing, the thing that worked perfect for you, like almost kills your friend, right? Because it just, they had such a bad reaction to that food or that medication or anything. Um, and I think that there's so much potential for personalized medicine. And these are complex patterns, you know, with so many factors to take into account, both lifestyle, genetic, and environmental. And so that's a very promising field, I think, for machine learning to help us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. So in terms of your space, where, where you're kind of lying in terms of the the neuroscience and ai what's the what's the the big picture goal what's the the major ambition yeah let, oh, let, let's okay. let's start for, for, for yourself what's the major ambition for yourself with your projects well so just to, to uh, clarify like in the past i did neuroscience research where it was modeling the brain but i'm not doing that research now um in terms of, uh, yeah, my ambition is to help people just be more psychologically minded and aware and uh, so that they can live better lives and have better human relationships and uh, know how to fulfill their needs better. Um, in terms of how it con coincides with machine learning, I mean, I guess I had been focusing recent years on dialogue and language. And so, for example, a previous project was looking at like uh, an eating coach and the idea is that, you know, for these specific domains, our problems are not that diverse, right? So we can't, right now, in terms of chatbots, we can't really have, we can have chatbots that seem very realistic in a certain context, or, you know, as long as the language doesn't get too far off. But the moment you start, you know, talking about something more complicated, it can't, cannot talk to you back like a human, right? It, it can fool you if you're just, you know, doing a very specific task or doing a specific thing. However, in terms of like motivation and understanding the roots of psychological problems, I think these things for a certain domain are, are tractable by machine learning models in the sense that um, you can have all the descriptions of a certain type of conflict and then be able to map that to like the essential human needs that tend to be underlying or the, you know, the problems that are underneath. So I think there is a lot of potential for uh, machine learning to create models that help remind us you know, like to have, we ideally we could have our perfect motivational coaches, our, our most insightful and then understanding friends accompany us, accompany us like every second, you know, like to help us with our, our, the way we're framing our thoughts, the way we're approaching our, you know, problems and approaching our own motivations and things like that in terms of feeling demoralized or only seeing the negative or not seeing the opportunities in a situation. And I think there's definitely a, it still has a lot of room for improvement, but this idea of machine learning coaches to, um, yeah, to help us. That's a very interesting okay. space, especially being as I'm a coach. And I think this is the, the area that most people fear is that AI is going to take my job. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, people have very different ideas about how many, what, what, to what extent the jobs can be taken over. I mean, the, the thing about, there is a real fear of jobs being taken over, but I don't think a coach is a worry. You know, like for machine learning, it's more like an enhancement in the coaching field. I mean, the type of, if, if it was to benefit, it would, it would mostly be an enhancement. I don't think, um, for example, the jobs that would be taken over, they're the ones that have repetitive tasks, right? So these are in terms of like, what's gonna be automated. It's whether it's machine learning or some other technology, it's things that are narrow in scope that are, automatable that is repetition refinement of a very very particular thing if you're like a strategist and you know you're or you're a ceo and you're fighting like so many different fires all the time or you're a coach which is like a you know you're helping the person being the ceo of their own personality um they that's that sort of thing is not you know you can't replace it you can only i think you're mostly just going to enhance it anytime in the near future okay so the the true application in your opinion of ai as as a tool rather than as a replacement so it's kind of like the advancement from that kind of human advancement in agriculture where we went from sticks to actual tools would you say that's yeah, it's, it's yeah, kind I, of that in, the, in, the, 
in the psychology and mental health space, yes, I, I would think definitely it's an enhancement rather than a tool. I mean, there will be jobs that are replaced by you know machine learning and lots of other technologies, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like I can't. I'm not going to say obviously there will be jobs that are replaced, but in terms of um, there are lots of jobs that will just be enhanced. Yeah, I, I I think you can see that through any kind of revolution that's ever happened before, whether it's the agricultural revolution, jobs are replaced by from humans to donkeys, and then the donkeys were replaced by tractors, and then the you, you kind of then went to factories, and the, yeah. the factory worker replaced the field worker in some senses, and the machines there replaced the the field worker, and then yeah, then again if you look at places like Jaguar Land Rover they they have robots but they work alongside people yes, and they they increase yeah. the productivity the efficiency and i think especially seeing what i've seen and working in the space that i i work in mental health and the idea of people having a personal mental health coach that's that's with them at all times helping them to stay in a safe stable mental zone is something that i think is massively massively needed and i just feel is a, a space that the mental health space uh in the uk is now becoming slightly unstigmatized but in yeah. foreign countries um some places that i've been the the idea of mental health is still very stigmatized and it's it's not seen as a a physical injury or something that can be replaced or or not necessarily yeah, replaced but or, yeah, or, or fixed it's just like oh this is this person's got a mental health issue let's just kind of label them that and leave them there in the corner um whereas the new kind of understandings of 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 like you said the 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 field of discovery the greatest field of discovery is actually our own mind that's <laughs> that's yeah. the, the biggest bit of of discovery we've got to do let alone the mariana trench like we've got our own mind to kind of dive into and go okay what's actually really going on here how does this process affect this process how does that process affect that process and i i think using ai as a tool and machine learning as a tool can only help us and can only push the human race forward is, is is that something you'd agree with yeah absolutely yes i think it's it's there it can promote awareness it can help us find other people that have commonalities i mean i think that's a huge thing when you have a mental health struggle um, or any personal struggle you feel so alone right just by nature of the experience you feel much more alone than logically makes sense of course other people feel like this and uh yeah so if you're if you're able to see patterns or in, and and see people that are talking similarly or have had similar experiences and you can also predict like these are these are going to be times when people will tend to have more of these types of problems or those types of problems so yeah i think definitely large scope for awareness and support and community community finding yeah definitely 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 okay um so we're, we're coming up to our commercial break here guys um this is your opportunity dr ann to do a bit of a shameless plug uh, where people can find you, uh, a little bit more about yourself, a little bit more about your projects. Where where would they find you if they were interested in collaborating with you or working with you or finding out more about what you do? Where where could they find that? Um, so my current project is called Diplomacy Dojo, and it's spelled the way you imagine. So it's diplomacy and then dojo, and it's basically an AI that helps you with difficult conversations so you can frame it in a positive, constructive, motivating way. Um, and in general, um, I'm an academic, so my web, my email is all publicly available. So anyone who wants to work with me or is interested, please email me. So it's anne.su, so A-N-N-E dot H-S-U at Q-M-U-L dot A-C dot U-K, which is Queen Mary University of London's email address. Nice, nice. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, um, I myself have uh, looked at some of your your machine learning work and I think the applications for HR um, are just incredible because in the business world now, um, it's a vulnerability businesses have is lawsuits. Um, and it's a massive vulnerability that they have that can, in some cases, cripple the company and cause massive quarterly losses. Um, 
by just somebody saying the wrong thing in a meeting or saying the wrong thing in an email or in something that's recorded. So having this kind of machine learning to allow you to go, okay, this is what I want to say in this email. Um, and this is the the machine kind of picking up potential offenses, I think is a, is a, a very good tool for people to have but uh yeah what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the commercial break here uh we'll see you after the break guys drive safe hello listeners we are back welcome back to where's your head at um today we are with none other than dr Anne hasu um who's been talking to us about machine learning ai and dabbling in a, into it a little bit about neuroscience so what we're going to do is we're going to dive back in um dr Anne, are you there again yes hi i'm here brilliant brilliant um so yeah the the question that i wanted to open this part of of, of the episode with is a moment that made you go, where's my head at? A moment that gave you a challenge that either personally or in life or in business or in work that now looking back with new perspective has kind of made you go, wow, I'm glad that happened. Um, it wasn't just one moment. <laughs> it was definitely long, many months. Um, so basically in academia, the the Career progression is like you get your PhD, you may you probably do postdoctoral research for a while, and then you either get a permanent faculty position or you have to go into industry. Um, some people want to go in industry, and other people are ambivalent, and other people actually would rather not. But it's just the it's the funnel gets ever tighter, you know, and it's just a lot of luck and a lot of um, or or if you've done the same field for a long time, then it's it's. You know, you could be very prestigious. It's very easy to get a job. For most people, though, it's very difficult to get a permanent faculty position because people have to relocate, you know, anywhere in the world just to, to have a position. Just mm -hmm. there are very few relative to the amount of PhDs being produced. And so I definitely was having lots of trouble when I was a postdoc. It was very frustrating, you know, get to the interview stage. They wouldn't get through. Um, and typically, because I was doing neuroscience and cognitive science, I was doing computing and computational approaches, but I was those topics. So I was applying for psychology departments primarily. And um, yeah, and I just didn't get any. And I was so frustrated. And I just thought like, you know, what? I'm going to quit this. I'm going to go into financial data mining and just earn loads of money. And <laughs> how this whole academic thing is just terrible. I hate it, you know. And so I was really frustrated. And, um, and I just thought like, how am I going to uh, prepare myself for industry? This is so long ago now, but... So basically, I approached uh, professors who worked in more applied fields. So I approached a professor in human-computer interaction, so interaction design, and I approached a professor who was working on argumentation tools. And I, I just thought about how can I change my current research that's very scientific and research-based to something very applied, and then also work on these other applied projects on the side so that it's very you know, to make the transition to industry. And but then it just by coincidence, it happened that the project, the applied projects that I was interested in was very much related to what they needed at Primary. <laughs> and it's just that so by me trying to leave academia and doing all these things to prepare to leave, that's actually what allowed me to get a permanent faculty position in <laughs> academia. You know, so it was very ironic. And then and on top of that, uh, it just helped me realize how much I how passionate I feel about applied work and how much I care about making things that people use and building things. And so I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't uh, got rejected from all those more, you know, those other faculty jobs in with a more research oriented, traditional research oriented approach. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the way that it uh, often works is that the uh, obstacles often turn into the opportunities in themselves and that's something that i often preach and tell people is sometimes you just need a bit of time but that obstacle has got an equivalent seed of opportunity buried deep within it yeah because everything everything through. does and it's just very hard in the moment to have faith that oh some, it's gonna work out you know like how you can some people naturally have that attitude and other people it can be very hard to believe that mm. but there's always opportunities and when you're pushing towards something, when you're discovering, you're learning new things about yourself and what you like, as well as just learning new things full stop, then these things will come up. 
Mm. So in in regards to the the applied space for academics, especially in your field, is there a demand for that? Is it is it something that's in need? Is does your industry and your field need more academics that want to apply? Their- oh, absolutely. So I mean, academia is pushing much more toward applied work, like ever more so. You know, last decade, like more and more, where we're we're motivated to you know make our research applied. Now, of course, in computer science, this is this happens very often relative to maybe some other fields. But on the other hand, though, on the other hand, um, most research still is like 20 year horizon, you know, plus, right, blue sky, like if even if you go to, like, say, DeepMind or Facebook AI research, they they are working on the blue sky things that are not going to be put into production next couple years, right, Mm. for the most part. And so to actually make research, and and you don't know if there's going to go go into production, right? It's they're, they're contributing to this body of knowledge that, you know, will, they're thinking eventually will lead to something that is useful, even though right now it's just very cool results. And so in terms of like directly applied research, um, yeah, no, absolutely. There's loads of people doing it in, in all sorts of fields, but it has the same challenges as uh, applied work in commercial work, right? You need funding to sustain it and, or you need to find a way for it to self-sustain it, you know, you can't you can't just build a technology for example in computer science you can't just build a technology and leave it of course right it's going to get outdated the next update can yeah. render the app useless useless so um yeah absolutely there's loads of applied research and then it has the same challenges of staying afloat in some ways as in commercial organizations and sometimes even more so right because it's not as directly incentivized yeah you still have all your other research um you know, obligations and teaching obligations and stuff very interesting. So it, it talking about being in the applied space, um, what's a day in the life of someone in your field like? What's a day in the life of someone that works in AI like? Gosh, I think um, it probably has a lot of variation, but probably just wake up, go to the computer, run <laughs> code, look at models, look at data, um, that's a lot of sitting in front of the computer and then but there's a lot of thinking i mean i think the hard part i mean there's so many um facets of machine learning research right you could be trying to solve a practical problem you could be creating a new algorithm you could be you know trying to run a new simulation you you could be creating tools to help modelers run their simulations there's just so many different angles that you can take but you know they do all involve sitting in front of a computer programming something or looking at some sort of data. Um, and a lot of part of machine learning is thinking of how to frame the problem. I mean, that's maybe the hardest part in a way, right? Like you you, you say you kind of want this, but it, someone has a problem they want to solve. Is it defined precisely enough? In research, you have very canonical de- defined problems. Like they have big data sets that they try to um, perform better on. They have performance benchmarks and they, you know, on these standardized data sets. And so they, they might have a very specific goal. And then it's like, how do I frame the problem for reaching that goal? And in, if you're working with an industrial or more practical problem, like say with a business, then you have to help them uh, define the problem, you know, like, cause mm. they might say, I want to be able to make better recommendations to doctors in terms of work that's relevant to them. Right. But then it's like, okay, what do you want to recommend? You're going to find the exact journal paper they want, or do you want the exact paragraph that summarizes it? Do you need it in layman's terms? <laughs> you know, you just so many details that really need to be ironed out to, to come up with a you know, concrete technology solution. Mm. So a lot of thinking, some also interspersed with a lot of just like trying to decide, trying to make something murky, clear. Okay, so it's kind of taking what appears to somebody to be quite a small question but taking all the possible variable answers to that big question to create your actual question to feed into the machine yeah absolutely to drill down to something that's uh, technically precise you know you have to frame a human question into uh, something a computer can understand which is numbers you know like you have to somehow <laughs> ones and zeros <laughs> translate that yeah exactly you have to tra- make that translation um, interesting yeah and i think a... part of the work also is is just reading research you know existing research 
I mean, I often get asked like, oh, what are your, you know, not, you know, people ask like, what, what books do you read and stuff? And I don't read books that often, you know, and I'll say like, well, I just don't really read, but all the time you have to be reading research. Like you just have to understand what people are doing and what's going on and how things are being solved. Interesting, nice little segue there. That's actually the next question I was going to ask you. Actually, was <laughs> is what from the challenges that you faced in in your industry? Obviously, your your kind of field is problems. That is pretty much <laughs> your your space is problems and critical thinking and thinking of problems in unique ways to be able to be answered, um, not only by a human mind but by a machine mind. So in regards to uh, problems, what would you say is a tool or a book that you would recommend that's helped you through or tackle a, a problem? Oh, gosh. Books that help me tackle problems. Mm. Or a book you would recommend. I don't know. There's so many books and there's so many ways. I mean, because I've worked in, I'm, I'm, I am working mm. in the motivational psychology space, research space. There's so many interesting tools for, for tackling problems and they all, um, they all come together. I guess uh, a tool recent, like a couple of years ago that I was focusing on was um, signature strengths. And so a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, there's all sorts of strengths finders in, in, in commercial organizations, I'm sure, right? You can take a test and it'll tell you like what your strengths are, what your kind. Yeah, what like Myers-Briggs and all, all those. Yeah, so Myers-Briggs yeah. is a bit more like uh, trying to figure out what um, your, how you process information. Mm-hmm. And, and strengths is a bit more like kind of these constructs that, that are things that we value, but then that you feel energized by expressing. And uh, and so in the research field, in the positive psychology research field, they, they they had their their strengths thing, and they came up they came up with them. Um, Martin Seligman, who's kind of sort of a founding father of positive psychology research, they they came up with them by looking at history and philosophy and all these things. And they're they're not just work based; they're just in both work and life, and, and more holistic. Nice. And so they have their you know signature strengths for psychology. And I think I find that uh, very I found it very interesting because I to 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 become very specific about to name that thing. You know, I think, for example, one of the strengths was like humor, for example. And another strength was, um, oh, I don't know. I think there was like, they had kindness and kindness was different from connection. And the, I guess it was very interesting which things were labeled and, and cause they did a lot of thinking trying to decide what things were different from something else. And uh, so that was kind of just, interesting to like be very clear like okay so someone can be really into connection and of course you use kindness when you try to connect with people but they are a different thing to kindness is like you might go and someone's on the street and you you might give them food or money or something like that but connection is is like you want a mutual dialogue right a mutual exchange and uh and so the idea is that you can try to keep those closer and to have those um have those be uh use those things to as, mo- as chances to express these things um, in order to motivate you, right? So it, it, we, we often just go th- do things without intention because we have to, we have all these tasks we have to do in the day, but then instead if we set an intention to use one of our strengths, which is by definition, the thing that energizes you, it's not what you're necessarily good at or better at, it's just yeah. the, it's something that, it's like a value. It's the same way as this expressing values. It's a, it's a similar idea to that. Um, so, I think this concept of signature strengths, there is there are lots of books on it. Um, and then uh, the other book that's very central to my current work is a nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg, which he is a unfortunately he's no longer alive, but it's a it's a conflict resolution book. And it's and they the conflict resolution has very similar approaches, you know, all throughout. But it's such a beautiful book and it's such a wonderful way that he puts it, you know, in terms of speaking from values, getting away from the rights and wrongs and different positions that people have which they can never agree on when there's a disagreement but getting to what's underneath and what's important like which i think that book is very needed in the uh, current global climate <laughs> um, yeah, yeah de- it's very hard you know it's very hard for when something triggers you and tre- makes you feel um defensive and insecure and threatened 
um, it's very hard to maintain the posture of compassion and trying to see, okay, well, they're a human being. They want, they, for the most part, 99 point whatever percent of people want good things, you know, like maybe there's a very, very, very small percentage that, you know, are sociopathic or whatever psychopathic but that's different right that's very 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 rare most people most people that you disagree with um want good things they want um things to be well in the world they want good feelings and co collaboration and um, they would prefer that if they could right it's because they're afraid that their needs aren't going to get met a hundred percent in terms of uh collaboration actually what was the name of that book again uh, it's nonviolent communication and who was that by Marshall Rosenberg. Okay, brilliant. Um, so then in terms of collaboration, like you said, that's one of the essential parts of, of human progression is collaboration. So obviously you're collaborating with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Who can you bring value to? Who can what you're doing bring value to? And who would you want to bring value to? So what I really want is to help, like, let's say everyone, but help everyone have the vocabulary to have productive conversations. Um, you know, it's, it's like conflict is an opportunity, right? It's something important at stake. It's not just a humdrum every day, like a boring thing. It's, it's something important. Your values are being surfaced and the, the essential needs that you have, they're, they're more apparent to you then. And they're apparent for the other person. It's, it's an opportunity for people to understand each other and to learn and to grow and to expand. And, and yes, it's a risky time because when there's conflict, you know, you can obviously have very negative feelings and it can cause a lot of upset and not a lot of negative consequences. But at the other time, it's a time of huge opportunity because if you handle a difficult situation di diplomatically with grace, with generosity, with uh, wisdom, and with positive motivation and a positive frame and it, then it it's the most trust building opportunity right because then people think like oh my gosh you know this is such a dangerous time and you safely help this through and i it's something we all can learn we're just not taught this right this is the fundamentals of conflict resolution and um and also qualified as a workplace mediator okay um yeah and it's just these are just skills you know the skills and when i when I had people testing my platform, which is to help people with difficult conversations and being able to speak about you know, values and to not speak non-judgmentally, but directly, it doesn't mean like avoiding the problem, but it's addressing the problem, but being able to describe it in a non-blaming, non-judgmental way and to then say what you want, you know, not just what you don't want and to, to appeal to values and needs and these universal things that are actually the core of the core of the issue. Um, right. So it's like if you're I don't know if you're if your boss is, uh, you know, shouting at you, the issue is not that they're shouting at you. The issue is that you, know, you want to feel respected or you want to feel safe or you want to feel, um, you know, encouraged or you want to feel peacefulness or something. Right. It's, some, it's something else. It's not just like, oh, he's shouting. Um, so what I want is to give everyone these tools to, so that everyone can speak and and handle difficult conversations and have the freedom to speak confidently and persuasively and be powerful in their communication, not be afraid to say things because they don't know how to say it. They think they're going to offend someone. Um, but no, you know, there, there are definite ways to talk about things that we might be afraid of talking about or handle situations we are, uh, you know, reluctant to give or give feedback or reluctant to give. Um, those are just skills that we can learn. And when people were trying out um, the platform I built, the AI, they, they all said that they realized like, oh, this is a skill I can learn. I can see, I can see myself getting better. I can see myself you know, becoming more confident and uh, relaxed in situations that might have otherwise felt tense in. I think there's massive applications, um, especially in the law enforcement space um, and especially in any kind of field where you have to deal with conflict and confrontation so teaching is obviously one where you have to deal with that uh, policing is another one mainly civil services where you have to kind of deal with people or just industries that are, are very people based and about getting people's emotions from a to b or understanding people's emotions so if, if somebody 
what anyone listening uh, to today's episode of Where's Your Head At? If you're in a role whereby you have to negotiate, facilitate, and diffuse conflicts, um, I would definitely, definitely recommend getting in touch. Um, so, Dr. Anne, where, where can people contact you? Uh, so, the website is diplomacydojo.com. That's the website for this uh, this AI tool. And otherwise, please contact me in my email, which is anne.su, so A-N-N-E dot H-S-U at Q-M-U-L, which is Queen Mary University of London. So at Q-M-U-L dot A-C dot U-K. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so the question that I like to ask people very often is, what do people often say? What do people often say either about you, about your industry, and about AI that What's a, what's a common thing that you hear? Um, I think the most common thing I hear is people expect a chatbot. Um, and maybe that reflects a, diff, a thing where people think of AI as like a person replacement in terms of it's a, it's a being, you know, it's a robot. It's like a ro- not, I mean, there are lots of robots like your, your, vacuum Zumba is a robot too but like it's a uh it's it's got the form of a human or something or a form of a being and I mean AI is so much broader than that but I think it's also interesting that that's the kind of top of mind association people because we are so uh humanly oriented even the most non-human oriented humans are so socially oriented right just by our development and it's so interesting because there's lots of um even very early ai research showing how much we just want to engage in a human level with everything so they had like a very simple computer program and this is like not ai it's just like a like a survey tool basically but that you know the survey was basically a computer um speaking about themselves so they would they wanted to elicit confessions from people and so what they had the computer say was like okay well I um, often people don't use me for like months on end and I feel neglected. When was some, when did you feel ignored recently? You know, so things like that. So like the computer would describe something from a computer perspective or like someone came and like used a lot of like graph, it was just kind of crazy too, like used a lot of graphics and multimedia on me. And then when was a time that you felt excited? (laughs) So it had like this weird, like trying to computer, trying to relate to a human. This is wait, I think from 82, something really long time ago, the study. And, but people definitely were much more willing to confess much more personal and intimate details when the computer like shared something themselves. And they were actually much more willing to confess to the specific computer terminal that gave them the, that had this interaction with them because they had a condition where they, they, oh, you know, something went wrong. We need to switch you to a different computer. And so the participants that engaged with that uh, dialogue, but switched to a different computer to monitor and terminal, um, they didn't confess as much, right? So they actually developed, even though it was just like a survey, you know, but that, that said these sentences from a computer, they, it elicited like very intimate, juicy confessions from people. That is and, so interesting. So wait, you people are actually more willing to tell the truth and pour their heart out to a machine than an uh, AI than they are to another human. Well, so that's definitely also a, a observation that research has. Right, there's definitely a lot of people who feel much more safe with an AI because it's it's not a human judging them, and that's absolutely the case. And I think. But in that that research study, the one I mentioned, yes, they were more willing, but it was it was more about the, the them wanting to make the connection with the computer, right? Because the the control condition was a different computer where the computer didn't talk about disclosures, right? So it's a little weird. Like the computers, the the empathic computer condition, the computer is saying like, oh, people don't use my programs enough, and I feel left out. When were you? When did you feel left out? You know, or like they say, oh, someone turned me off and and then use me to f- full past my capacity. And I felt exhausted. You know, when were you like unfairly worked? You know, so that it was more about trying to create a compassionate connection with a computer. Um, but separately, separately, as, as, you were, as you were commenting, people do overall, there are plenty of people who do feel safer uh, confessing and talking about difficult subjects with a computer compared to a human, just because of the way, you know, 
judgment and social stigma and things like that. Yeah, how it all works. So yeah. in, in regards to social stigma, what would you say people don't know about AI and machine learning that they should know? Oh, well, gosh, so many things. I mean, it's nothing to be scared about, I think, for sure. And to be honest, I don't think there's anyone who is researching. I mean, there's there's concerns with every technology. We don't want it to displace jobs in a way uh, that, you know, single-handedly leaves people without jobs. But there's lots of new jobs being created. It's not clear with every technology revolution, new jobs get created. But it's, I mean, I can't imagine this whole, like, um, you know, super killer robots coming along. It's just, if you hear these stories from, like, Elon Musk or sometimes even Bill Gates, like, they don't work in machine learning. They're computer scientists. They're amazing business people. They're amazing technologists. But they don't work in machine learning. And it's just a very, uh, it's more like sci science fiction, you know, it's more like it's like captivates the imagination, whether for horror or for good. Those are sci-fi story, even Ray Kurzweil, it's like he's a good storyteller, you know, it's, which is fine, it's great, but that's so far on the off in the future. Um, one of the most famous machine learning researchers, um, Andrew Ng, who's one of the, you know, founding people in the field, he had a quote saying like worrying about killer robots, something like worrying about killer robots is like, worrying about overpopulation on mars <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's basically you know what i think that sums it up very well oh, okay that's a that's a, a beautiful end to to the episode thank you very very much for your time uh dr ran uh thank you to anybody that's been listening today um i hope this is given a new perspective and change where people's head is at in regard to AI and machine learning. Um, it's been an honor to have you on as a guest. Uh, some incredible insight there. Um, some some great books for people to, to pick up. And uh, yeah, um, it'd be great to have you on the show at another point later on down the line. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Uh, oh, thank listeners, you. My pleasure. No worries, no worries. Uh, listeners, thank you very much for listening. Uh, this has been Where's Your Head At? Um, I've been Michael Harding. You can find me at I am Mr. Harding on Instagram um, and at Unity FM 93.5 FM Birmingham. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs>